This is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz. On this week's episode of the podcast, we have Rusty Russell talking about offers. You should be really excited for this week's episode. This is one of the few times I actually had an hour-long conversation before the episode started and had an hour-long conversation after the episode ended as well. A lot of things are moving in the world of Lightning Junkies, most of them behind the scenes. Some evidence of improvements going on with me and Kat, who is my partner, assistant, all-around powerhouse of usefulness. I appreciate you, Kat. You're utterly amazing, and with you, we're going to make the show a lot better. Some of the ways that we've done that is by redesigning our website on lightningjunkies.net. We've spent some time trying to make some support options clear. We're also working on the store that I got started on last year but got distracted from. I'm also working on the possibility of an email newsletter or otherwise having an easier way for you to become a lightning junkie yourself. Officially. Officially a lightning junkie. That's a real thing, and I'm pretty confident a good amount of you are going to become Lightning Junkies because you're already Lightning Junkies, so don't fight it, just give in. For now, let's go ahead and jump into this episode. I would like to go ahead and welcome Rusty to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing, Rusty? Great, Chaz. It's fantastic to finally be on here. I'm glad that you're on here. The main reason that I thought to bring you on is during the Lightning Conference in Berlin last year, you gave a talk about offers, a way to improve invoices on the Lightning Network. Before we jump into all that, I think that's a big thing to jump into. I wanted to take a step back because I honestly don't really know your pre-Bitcoin background. Would you mind kind of giving us some detail there really fast? Sure. My background is open source development. I worked for almost 20 years as a full-time Linux kernel developer. That was my background. The Linux kernel is interesting because it was one of the poster child open source projects when open source and free software was still niche uh, and misunderstood. So went through that transition into mainstream with Linux and got into Bitcoin in a general sense. I guess it piqued my interest probably 2010. As another interesting open source project, trying to do something ambitious and different. I looked at it. I grabbed some toy Bitcoins. It wasn't really real money then. So you grab some Bitcoins, you kind of send it around. Oh, that's kind of cool. Kept a finger on the pulse a bit of what was happening. It was only about five years ago ago when I jumped in, I decided to take a sabbatical from my day job and worked on trying to write what we would now call a sidechain for Bitcoin to address some of the scalability issues that we saw in Bitcoin. Maybe I could build a sidechain that had different security trade-offs. I didn't really go anywhere, but it was an interesting experiment. At the end of that process, end of that six months, I was approached by Blockstream uh, and ended up about six months after that joining them. During that time, the Lightning Network paper dropped. That was obviously pretty exciting. At the time, nobody was going to implement it. It was just this idea, hey, we could do this. Greg Maxwell, who was then the CTO of Blockstream turned around and said to me, hey, Rusty, how would you like to try to implement the Lightning Network? That was how I got into Bitcoin, how I got into Lightning. It derailed me from becoming a Bitcoin Core dev. Instead, I became a Lightning dev. Fast forward 12 months, we had three major companies doing different open source implementations of Lightning. We met in Milan to come together, take everything we'd learned and produce a specification because obviously we all wanted to interoperate and try to take the best parts of each of the things we'd worked on. That was the Milan Summit, which led to the Lightning Bolt series of specifications. I 
chair the specification meetings for a long time. Now the chair chairing rotates between different people every week. There are a few other groups who've gotten involved, but it's still the main people who founded it, which was Lightning Labs, myself from Blockstream, and then later on the rest of the Blockstream team, Eclair's team at Async, who've done the most legwork on the specification itself. That's what keeps me going is getting all that stuff standardized and implemented into people's hands. Are you glad that you landed in Lightning versus landing as a pure Bitcoin person? You know, it's a really interesting question. I was a little bit nerd sniped at the time because Bitcoin is in C++. I had right up on the list C++ specs and everything. I was prepped. I was ready to go start hacking on Bitcoin D. I was going to be the new kid. It was going to be kind of cool. This came out of nowhere, but it was too good an opportunity to pass up. No regrets, although I kind of wish I could clone myself and have done both. Maybe see what happened in both universes there. Exactly. But I think the Lightning thing absolutely needed to happen. It was certainly good to be able to get behind that and push. With my background in open source standards, it was obvious to me that we needed to have the spec process in the background as well. Not just have people implementing stuff, but have people writing down how to implement it and how it should be implemented and best practices and all that stuff that you want in a system where you've got multiple implementations taking out different niches. Have you seen a similar world between Linux kernel dev and Lightning dev? Oh yeah, absolutely. The first thing is like really early days, and this applies to the Bitcoin stuff as well. You've kind of got a different breed of developer. You have to be a true believer because everyone else thinks it's a joke. You have to have that intrinsic motivation to be involved at all. That leads to a purity of intention and effort that is just fantastic to work with. I love working with all the Lightning devs across all the implementations. They are laser focused, very, very sharp. Some of the best developers I've worked with. Naturally, standards involve compromise. Like it would be great to do this, but maybe it's easier to do this. Those discussions have always been energizing and fresh and light. They remind me a lot of the early days of Linux. In the early days of Linux, we thought we knew what Linux was going to be. It was going to beat Windows. We knew exactly what was going to happen. We were going to take over. It was going to be the year of the Linux desktop in 1998 and then 99. And then it became this running joke. Is this the year of the Linux desktop? Bitcoin has a lot of the similar thing. Everyone's like, oh, we're going to destroy the monetary system. We're going to compete with Visa. I just don't see that. The world's more complicated than that is. We will end up doing fantastic things because we have this fantastic tooling. We have this really interesting stuff. But I'm not bold enough to predict exactly where it will go because I saw that with Linux. I never would have predicted that all 500 of the top 500 supercomputers in the world would be running Linux. Nor would I have predicted that however many billion cell phones run Linux. That is not what we were aiming at, and yet that's where we ended up. Success can look very different from where you think it is. That's always been my attitude to Bitcoin uh, and Lightning. It builds something that's fantastic and has great uses, but you can't necessarily predict where it will take off and what parts will really run with it. When you're building something that hasn't existed before, you can't see the things that didn't exist because it didn't exist so that they could happen. It takes someone to come along with that idea that suddenly you've now enabled with this new technology, um, and they will do something that will surprise you. Let's go ahead and take a step back to you joining Blockstream. How did that ramp up getting started over there look like? I work remotely from Australia. So I went across to Blockstream, spent a couple of weeks there, talked about stuff, talked about what was happening for them, and had these broad discussions. I met with Joseph Poon and Taj Dreija, who just released the Lightning paper. I had written up a series of blog posts about decoding the original Lightning paper, which was kind of hard to understand, certainly hard for me to understand. I felt that it needed a primer. So like, here's the things you need to know about how to read the Lightning paper. Yeah, I basically came home and started going, right, well, let's start building all the pieces that we need for Lightning. The paper described the concept and some ideas on how you might be able to do it, but there was a whole heap of stuff that was left undecided, exactly how you would produce these transactions, what the network would look like, and all these other things. It took a long time for all those pieces to fall into place. I started hacking and releasing all my code. That became C-Lightning, which technically is the earliest Lightning implementation because it descends from that early pre-work before we even had a specification. That was pretty much me hacking and releasing stuff. It was quite a while 
before we took on our second employee to work on Lightning, which was Christian Decker. He was obviously interested in Layer 2 networks. His PhD was on micropayment channels. With that obvious background, we picked him up because we felt that we should. This was fascinating, but it wasn't clear to me at that point that it was a priority for Blockstream to put more into Lightning. So Blockstream's interest in Lightning is an interesting one. It's more like it needs to exist. It's obviously good for the Bitcoin network. It's fascinating technology. It ticks all the boxes, but it's not revenue generating for Blockstream. It's more like we need to be there to help push stuff along. There are going to be interesting opportunities that come up. We don't need to own Lightning. As long as it exists and is healthy infrastructure, that's fantastic for us. We see that as our role in the ecosystem, hence the emphasis on the standard side. Before we jump into more recent things, I wanted to ask, since you started a Blockstream, what was your biggest accomplishment? What was your biggest thing that you're proud of in that time? Oh, wow. I think that probably releasing 1.0 of the Lightning spec, the bolts, that was, in some ways it was a milestone. It was just an arbitrary point when this is 1.0, we kind of happy with that. Let's move on from the next stage. In another way, it was a culmination of three years of getting up at 5.30 in the morning to attend these calls and thrash out all these minute details on exactly how this stuff works, everyone's implementing it and interoperating and everything else. It reflected those two face-to-face meetings and some other ones that happened around conferences. I felt that was a proud moment for us because I think that showed that this was something real, that there was broader interest in implementing this. We could see from there, we've reached the first peak of the mountains. You can see all the stuff ahead of us, all this great stuff that's coming, but we did kind of reach this summit and got a moment of like, wow, we actually really have done a lot of stuff and we really do have compelling technology at this point. There's always little things that happen, like somebody goes and does something cool with Lightning and you go, oh wow, that's really great. A lot of the Lightning activity now is building up on layers, people building paywalls and other things and other models on top. That's where the action is. It's nice in some ways, kind of being at the low level and in the background, and you just get to quietly work away at the improvements. Very rarely does that become the massive headline thing, because the headline thing is the people doing great stuff on top. I just wanted to ask about the idea of creating a spec for something like the Lightning Network at all. Now, it's my understanding that Bitcoin does not have a spec. Is that right? Yeah, Bitcoin is an interesting one. The developers chose to rely on a single implementation. In practice, everybody has to agree, is this a valid block? Is this a valid transaction? There's no debate on that. The entire network must completely agree on how that works. It doesn't matter if you had a spec that said it should be a valid block. If every implementation rejects it, well, that's reality. Having a separate implementation and spec is extremely difficult for something like Bitcoin. Now, in the Lightning Network, it's different. The things that I implement in my node mainly affect my direct peers, and they may affect people who are routing payments through me. If I go off and implement something that's completely different, worst thing is I fall off the network. The network doesn't fall apart. We don't really require a majority of people to agree. We can do incremental changes and things like that. In a way, it's a lot easier for us to write a spec than it is for something like Bitcoin. It has more meaning. It gives everyone an ability to upgrade. The other thing that happens is that because of this fact that everyone doesn't have to upgrade at once on Lightning, the network actually moves pretty fast. We deliberately made sure that there's room in the spec for improvements and additions. So you can basically flag hey, I support this cool new feature. As soon as your peer says, yep, I support this cool new feature too, then you can start using it. That's why we can have independent implementations, implementing things in different orders, adding their own boutique things on top, and the whole network still holds together really well. It is a slightly different beast. If you want multiple implementations, you really do want a spec somewhere that's written down that says how they should behave. One, because that allows the cool new implementations to come out and other people to go and implement it. Secondly, because it allows other people to think about things in a way they don't have to literally go down and read the code. They can read the spec and go, hmm, we can improve it this way or prove it that way. And it makes sure that you're not simply implementing something because it was easy for you to implement it that way. When you write the spec, you're forced to think in a more abstract, future-proof way. Is this really the best way of doing it? 
Then you implement it as well and go, well, okay, there's a problem. This was too hard to implement. But that's sort of a secondary consideration. The first consideration is, does this make sense? Is this the best way we can do this? That's proven valuable. Particularly, it's a point of coordination between different implementations. There are numerous times when one of the teams has come up with an idea, proposed the inspect form, and then there's been an improvement or a fix that's come in from one of the other teams because it's a fresh pair of eyes. That process itself has happened so often that I think everyone involved has found this process incredibly valuable just to get that peer review. Absolutely. Not to bounce around too much here, but as listeners might know, there are three major implementations of Lightning. There are some other ones too, but the three major ones, see Lightning, LND, and Eclair. Could you briefly do a contrast between the three really fast? One of the things people focus on if they're technical is the different languages they're implemented in. Eclair is implemented in Scala, LND is implemented in Go, and C Lightning is implemented in C, of course. It's less different than you'd think. All of them have the same core functionality. You can even compare different releases and see what features they have. The C Lightning approach tends to be more server-side. It has a whole heap of plugins that you can use to extend it. Those plugins are generally not written in C. They're often written in Python, but you can write them in Go as well. You can write them in Shell if you want to. You can write them in almost anything. We're trying to make basically this framework that people can add things to. Very much focused on the server-side. If you're you're running a big Lightning node or a series of Lightning nodes, that's where C Lightning really shines on that robustness side and resource efficiency, like for small nodes. LND is more balanced across both being a client and a server at the moment they have some really cool stuff coming up with their multi-part payment support. For example, the latest version of C Lightning will not send multi-part payments by default, whereas it will happily receive them, splitting a payment across multiple parts, in line with that whole idea that we're concentrating on server-side first. Whereas the latest version of LND will now actually send out multi-part payments when necessary, which is kind of cool. They're a little bit ahead there, for example. Eclair have a beautiful mobile app. The Phoenix wallet is probably the leading UX wallet at the moment, at least in my opinion. They're very much down those end. They've always kind of had that edge on UX design. Different teams bring different strengths, I feel. That's the broad strokes. You get fascinating stuff out of all the teams. It really does vary almost release to release, sometimes week to week on who's got the coolest new feature. It's a treadmill as an implementer to go, oh crap, wow, they've implemented that. We better get on that and do something similar or or at least reach feature parity. That's pretty exciting. You know, when the others release something that's really cool, it definitely invigorates you to, to go and make sure you've got something cool as well. Do you think you guys would be as far along as you are if you were the only implementation out there right now? In some ways, would be further. If you're the only implementation, then you just implement it and ship it and you're done. You don't have to write up a spec. You don't have to write spec tests. You don't have to go through debate and everything else. But in other ways, we would be way worse off. Simply, as I said, in that process of writing the spec and negotiating, we found bugs. We found enhancements where people said, hey, you know, we could just do it this way. Then we could do these following things. Or this would be way easier. Crap, you're absolutely right. Sometimes because it didn't make a difference because our existing implementation did it a certain way. And sometimes it's just that we missed it. While technically we may have had more features if we'd just gone ahead and done it on our own. In the long term, the technical debt that we would have built up from having less great technical decisions would probably start to overwhelm us about now. I feel going forward, we're in a much better place having had that process. What have you been working on more recently in regards to Sea Lightning? That's a really good question. Turns out that the big issue on my plate is offers, which we're going to talk about shortly. There's a few phases of that, it turns out. Firstly, is a simple messaging system across the network and this idea of blinded paths that came out of TBAST from async. I'm building on top of that this idea of offers, which is a layer on top of invoices, which I spoke about at the Lightning Summit. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the offers thing, because yeah, like you were saying, you gave a nice talk about that at the Lightning Conference. 
out of that entire talk, I think I remember that one talk that you gave, the rest had just got washed away from jet lag. I, I know the feeling. I was pretty jet lagged myself. We came up with this invoice format. It was actually pretty late in the process. That's why it's bolt number 11. It's actually the highest numbered bolt in the, the specification series. That's because we went, oh, well, we actually really would need a standard way of presenting. Hey, pay me some money, please. It was at the time of Segwit had introduced this BEC32 encoding. We reused that or abused that, if you will, to encode the information you need for an invoice, which is stuff like, here's the description of the stuff that you're buying from me. Here's the amount to pay me, if there's a minimum amount, which there is for most things. A few other useful fields. It was obviously signed cryptographically so that later on I could prove that you had offered me this. It says what the payment hash is. It has optional route hints to say, here's how you can find me. Maybe I've got a private channel or maybe it's just for future proofing it if we were going to use route hints for lightweight nodes and things like that. There are a whole heap of things that went into this. Bolt 11 was pretty much invented by me going, well, what do we need? It was minimum sufficient invoice and it has a number of problems. At the moment, an invoice is not reusable. You can only pay an invoice once. And if somebody else tries to pay the same invoice you have, they have a security problem in that an invoice basically says, I'm offering you money. I will give you money if you give me pre-image, what we call the pre-image of this hash. Once that's been paid once, all the nodes on that route have that pre-image. If somebody else tries to pay the same thing, they can actually just take your money. Invoices really are single use. And that's okay for some uses. All the wallets will tell you, hey, you've already paid this invoice and they will refuse to try to pay it again. But that doesn't work if you have a web page and you want to say, hey, send me some money underneath the picture of the thing that you're going to ship them or whatever it is, you want to put an invoice. Now you have to generate those every single time because if you reuse an invoice and wait till it's paid, there's a possibility that two people will try to pay the same invoice and end up with a security problem. But on the other hand, generating an invoice for every web page load is pretty sucky too. So people tend to have a click through for their invoices. The other thing is that because it's single use, you don't have things like recurrence. This is something that vendors particularly love about credit cards. You can sign someone's credit card up to pull money out every month. Consumers hate it for very good reason. That is because credit card is a pull technology, not a push technology. But if we do the same thing on Lightning, it's a much more balanced trade. I will agree. I'll tell my wallet, sure, push money to this person every month as they've requested, but then I'm in complete control. I don't need to ask you, hey, I want to cancel my subscription. I just tell my wallet to stop paying that recurring invoice. Now, in order to do all this, we need something called an offer, which kind of looks a bit like an invoice, but is actually like a layer before the invoice. It says, contact me and I'll give you an invoice. There's already an ad hoc standard called LN URL, which does some of this. That's because this is a significant hole in the way we use Lightning today. One of the problems with LN URL is that to get the invoice, you reach out over HTTPS. You actually use standard web protocols. There are significant privacy issues issues that we've tried really hard in the Lightning Network to avoid about me making a direct connection to your server in order to get information off you so I can make a payment. The Lightning Network goes to fairly great lengths to try to route payments through different paths so that they can't be traced as easily. That's quite important for financial privacy. We wanted the same thing in offers, which basically means you need to be able to send that request to say, hey, I want to accept this offer, send me the real invoice through the Lightning Network itself. The first step of offers is basically to write a messaging system. You can actually use a fake payment as a messaging system, but it's pretty abusive on the network. Sending a payment is slower than sending a message because each pairs of hops needs to actually confirm the payment and everything else. It's also something of a denial of service if you don't actually send any money because you're consuming resources, you're just abusing it in order to send this message through rather than actually send a payment. The first step is to have a native messaging system. The second step on top of that is to have a way of me saying, here's how to send me the reply to this without actually revealing where I am. Because this is also part of the deal on the Lightning Network. The vendor is usually not anonymous. They say, here's my node, here's where to pay me. But the person paying should absolutely be anonymous. As long as you send me the money, you will get the thing. That's the deal. It's not like a credit card where 
you're sending me a promise of money, so I need to know who you are to make sure that you can actually pay it. I'm literally holding the Bitcoin once you've paid me. So I don't care who you are. You've paid me for the service. Here it is. For that reason, we like strong or as strong as possible anonymity for payers. Of course, if you're going to contact me to get an invoice, I need to be able to send you that invoice without knowing exactly where in the network you are, which is another layer of technology that we had to build. Fortunately, T-Best, who works for Async and is a prolific developer there for Eclair, came up with this really clever blinding scheme. He wants to use it for HTLCs and private routes for vendor privacy, but we can use the same technique to send messages so that you can reply to me without knowing where I am. The offer basically is this layer above invoices. If we look forward to the future and what post-offer world would look like, you'll see offers everywhere. They could be static. They can be printed out. They can just be set on a web page and your experience would be exactly the same as Lightning today. You scan it or enter it or paste it or whatever. But behind the scenes, your Lightning node actually then goes out, fetches the real invoice and then pays it. You won't see much difference. Or potentially it asks for your approval. It says, hey, this says it wants to be paid once a month. Are you okay with that? And you say yes or no. There's a little bit more UX, but generally just think of it like a super invoice. That is the kind of UX design. First thought that I have here to respond is back in the day, it was very common for people to put a Bitcoin QR code on anything. People at a sports stadium are trying to shill for some free money over the internet. Since then, people have stopped doing that, or at least as much because people are starting to realize that address reuse is not a good thing overall, privacy-wise. Is there any kind of concern with the same kind of idea here, at least with the way that you think you might end up building it, etc.? No, that's exactly the point. You can have an offer that is paid by as many people as you want and you don't give up your anonymity. It's not like address reuse. This is exactly the use case we're after. Rather than having people paste Bitcoin addresses in order to send, you would paste an offer. One of the issues with the Lightning Network is because it's not a broadcast network, you really do want that invoice up front so that you can prove that you sent money. At the moment, you get an invoice. When the invoice is signed by the node, when you pay it, you get back the pre-image. You can show someone the pre-image and the invoice and prove that you paid for it. If I sent you money and you didn't ship me something or someone goes, you didn't really donate 500 bucks or whatever, you can prove to them that you did if you want to. That proof is actually really important when you think about a commerce system without intermediaries where trust is effectively non-existent. But you need some kind of proof that you paid and what you paid for in order to raise disputes. This is exactly what you get. You get this offer thing that is completely reusable and now provides you with an invoice as well. So you will actually have proof. I can prove that I donated to Chaz, which is something that you can't do in Lightning at the moment. Even if you use something like Keysend. LND have this thing where instead of an invoice and you tell me what the payment hash is and I go, cool, you give me the secret that responds to that payment hash, I'll give you money. It's the reverse. I actually send you the message and I tell you what the secret is in order to take the money. That's great for just spraying money out over the Lightning Network, but you have no proof that they actually did that. You have no way to prove to others that you made that payment because you had all the secrets already. You just sent it to them. But with offers, you go, cool. And here's the invoice that I paid. You'll actually get a receipt for donations, which is kind of cool. Now it's up to you whether you use that receipt, but it is a great thing to have. Are there any downsides to this particular idea? Yeah, there's a little bit more latency. I need to contact your node through the Lightning Network in order to get the invoice. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I have to contact you to send the payment. If I found a way to get a message through to you to get the invoice, there's a high probability that I can use the same route to actually send the payment itself. It's not necessarily a deal breaker in that case, but there is an increased latency requirement for that. 
There is also some complexity. It's pretty cool, but some of the features like recurrence have additional requirements on wallets. Now, a wallet really does need a screen that says, here's all the recurring payments that you've signed up to. You said you'd pay this once a week, you'd pay this once a month, whatever. It needs to keep that state, basically ask for a new invoice every month or whatever it is. Uh, it needs to present that to the user so they can control their outgoings. The other thing is that recurring payments, of course, you won't always want those to be in Bitcoin. Your recurring payment amount is probably specified in some other currency. Offers are actually not necessarily in Bitcoin. You can specify a different currency. The UX flow there would be something like, hey, you, you want me to sponsor your podcast at the five USD a month level. My wallet might present to me, hey, Chaz wants eight Australian dollars a month because I'm localized, I'm in Australia, and I approve that. Next month, it goes to pay you and it goes here. You send the invoice. And the invoice, of course, it really is in Bitcoin. It does the conversion. It goes, hold on. Now Chaz is asking me for like $8.50 Australian. And I've only got approval to spend $8 a month. Maybe at that point, your wallet pops up and says, hey, sorry to bother you again, but you know that $8 payment? It's now an $8.50 payment. But it can go, well, Chaz did say it was going to be five US and the, the Australian dollar sucked even harder. So therefore it is now eight fifty. So that makes sense. Or it says, no, he said five US. I would expect that to still be $8. He's trying to screw you. There are some complexities in there around currency conversion, but you really do need those. Vendors generally want recurrence, pre-hyper-Bitcoinization anyway. They want recurrence in some fiat currency. There's currency conversion issues and stuff like that. There are subtleties around offers. Everything that's in there pretty much leads you to a better UX experience overall. Something that I think people are going to really love. It's one of those things where I think once people have it, we'll be like, remember the days when you used to cut and paste individual invoices for stuff? That was insane. It really does feel like a massive UX step up. That was going to be my next question here. Let's say Lightning, Bitcoin, go to the moon and there's mainstream adoption. Do you think these kinds of features are basically required in that world? Yeah, absolutely. We, we will have something. People will end up doing something. The problem is if they do something, it might not be anywhere near as privacy preserving as the standards that we've set for ourselves on the Lightning Network. I pick on the LNURL guys here, but that's not really fair. They came up with a perfectly working solution. But it is a classic example. You can do things if you bake it in at the base layer that are more privacy aware than if everyone needs to come up with their own solution. They will just choose the simplest point from A to B. That isn't always privacy aware. Plus, there's always benefits in having standardization across the board anyway. I, I think we do absolutely need something like this. We've had long debates about the importance of invoices. You do not need invoices today on the Lightning Network. We're all friends, pretty much, and we're all just sending money around. I I remember being surprised at what happens on the Lightning Network when somebody makes a mistake and they restore an old backup or something and they accidentally post an old invalid transaction and the penalty logic from their peer kicks in and takes all the money from them. In almost every case, the person is hugely apologetic and tries to figure out how much money they owe the poor person they just stole their money from. That's still the state of the network today. We haven't seen a huge number of malicious actors. It's mainly enthusiasts and people trying to build stuff and that's great, but that is not the world we will be in should Lightning and Bitcoin be successful. It will be a much more adversarial place. A lot of the design stuff that we're doing is designed for that scenario where you may not need it today, but eventually you damn well will want some kind of cryptographic proof that, hey, I really did send money to you and you promised to deliver this if you did and you haven't. That is going to become much more important as we move into that phase of real mainstream adoption. On the previous episode with Elisa, there was some talk about accountants. And if we were using something like QuickBooks, it might end up being nominated in Bitcoin instead of dollars. It sounds like you're basically building tools for these Uber nerds that are accountants that look at numbers all day. <laughs> and my analogy is like this. If you look at how the web started out, the early web was a couple of people down in the IT department were kind of cool on this whole new internet thing. And they were like, oh, yeah, we should set up a web server. A lot of company web servers are 
on where just some randos down in the basement set up this old machine to serve web pages, registered a domain, and that was their website. It kind of grew organically through that. Interestingly, Linux benefited a lot from that because it was free to slap it on an old PC and you could go ahead and serve web pages. Then by the time they went, oh, we've got to get serious about this internet web thing, turns out they already had some presence. They had this established server that had been up and just quietly ticking away in the corner. And I see to some extent the growth of Bitcoin and Lightning may follow a similar trajectory. You start with someone going, hey, you know what? We can accept Lightning payments on whatever thing. The difference between the two is that in that case, they're dealing with real money. They could go, hey, our website could accept Lightning payments and we could do that. Now you've got this problem that you're dealing with real funds and that tends to be a blocker inside organizations. You do need some sign-off from people who are actually used to dealing with live funds, which means you need accommodations for accounting hooks and stuff like that. In order to enable that, like, hey, IT geeks could just add this to the side of their existing infrastructure. You do need the hooks that can integrate with everything else and make the accountant types happy who are going to be looking at numbers. Otherwise, they're going to be like, well, where did this money come from? How come we've got stock leaving and we've got this weird currency? What's even happening? But the other cool thing about that scenario is that if we look at what the first wave of pushing Bitcoin adoption looked like, it was, hey, you should like sign up to BitPay so you can accept Bitcoin. But it turned out that didn't really bring them into the Bitcoin universe. They didn't actually have to hold any Bitcoin. They could push it off to someone else and only ever have to handle fiat. That is not true if you're running your own Lightning node, because you need effectively some petty cash inside your Lightning node in order to grease the wheels and, and accept things. Even if you're fairly actively pushing off excess to an exchange in order to convert for fiat, you need a float effectively. You need some Bitcoin in your node. That gets people in the door. That means they're literally holding Bitcoin now. In this idea of this kind of BitPay-esque world of the 2013-2014 era, they weren't having to do that. I find that really interesting. I definitely look forward to seeing this kind of grassroots growth of Lightning Network usage. Have you seen that since you've started working on the Lightning Network, that kind of grassroots explosion? The main grassroots things have been greenfields, and they're always easier. People are going, cool, if it's a cool idea, I'll build this on top of Lightning. That's always going to be the early adopters who are going to be doing exactly that. There's less of the whole, hmm, we already accept payments, maybe we should also accept Lightning payments. But you've got to get your infrastructure up to the point where they can. you make that as low a bar as possible, that they can click a few things, follow a few FAQs, install something, and away they go. I think to some extent that requires this killer app, requires some niche, some area where this makes really good sense, and it pushes forward with that. I imagine there'll be some area where this kind of thing becomes fairly common and everyone starts doing it there, and then it kind of bleeds out into other areas. We go, oh, I guess we could do that too. We haven't quite seen that level of adoption yet. Part of that is testament to how much infrastructure we're having to build. I mean, this is basically building an entire new industry. It's quite a big task to do this, just from the sheer tooling and everything else, not to mention the fact that you're dealing in a currency that most people are not familiar with. Now, we continue to build the tools, and then people take those and refine them and package them so they can be dropped into things, so that people do not have to be like, first you start with the spec, and then you read that, and then you read your implementation, and then you read your install notes. You go through this massive process in order to really get into the Lightning world. It is rapidly getting much easier for you to deploy Lightning without having a huge amount of background into all the, the nuance. That's definitely one of the aims of all the Lightning teams is to make that process as simple as possible. Part of that goes all the way down to the spec. If there's things we can do in the spec that make Lightning more robust and better and, and fewer edge cases, that trickles upwards. There's fewer things you have to document. Oh, by the way, don't ever do this because it's a huge problem. Part of that is just experience. As we learn things, we learn what things not to do. But part of it is just more eyes looking at things and thinking of different ways to make this whole thing more accessible.
we're very early days in the Lightning infrastructure. But on the other hand, at some point, we hit that killer use case and it just skyrockets probably faster than you'd think. That was certainly my Linux experience anyway. I would probably agree that we haven't really seen that strong use case to really bring in everyone to really say, oh man, I have to use this. I, I need this right now. That's just not there yet. Going to a quick meta note here really fast. What is on the Lightning Network right now that interests you, like an app or anything else? Oh, wow. Everything. I think the whole paywall idea has always been interesting. It'll be interesting to see which of the various approaches out there really take off in that sense. The tooling around that is getting better. As you get more tooling and infrastructure, it gets easier for people to deploy things. That may well be a niche that catches on. There's a lot of interesting gaming, which I think is fascinating. That's definitely a, a huge area that is ripe for exploration. I try to keep an eye on that as well. I look at some of the work that Zaft is doing with their strike stuff. It's kind of interesting to me, certainly a side that I hadn't really thought about. I'd never thought that you would outsource paying your invoices to a third party, but for many of these cases, it makes sense. It has privacy concerns, which is one of the reasons that those concerns are feeding into the spec for offers, for example. There's so much experimentation going on at the moment. It's actually hard to keep up with everything that's happening. I'm not going to play favorites at this point. I've also been looking at the LSAT stuff that L&D have released, building on their Macaroon experience to effectively give you something that allows you to pay for an API, and that could easily feed into the paywall kind of ideas. I'm fascinated to see what people do with offers, because I think that opens up a whole new realm of payment opportunities. I expect that to open up even more. There's a lot of stuff happening higher up the stack. That's really amazing work. I've said on multiple occasions that someone will come up with some, some use for the lightning, which is so brilliant and so different that my first reaction will be, that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And I'll be eating my words within six or 12 months because it'll be this massive thing. I know I'm terrible at predicting the future, so I'm not even going to try to identify things at this point. Just to say that there's, there's a broad swath of people doing fascinating things and experimenting around. And we need that because we don't know what the future will hold. Speaking of which, can you please predict when offers will be live and ready to use? <laughs> <laughs> right. So when will offers be live and ready to use? This gives you a bit of insight into the spec process. Basically, like most implementations, we don't ship anything that's not experimental until it's in the spec. The final step in the spec is you've got to have two implementations that have been implemented independently that both interoperate and work together. I'm at like step zero, which is writing the spec and implementing it to make sure the spec is sane and says everything it needs. Step two is then basically getting other people to comment on the spec, pushing it out there, get other people's commentary. Then step three is getting someone else to implement it. One of the other teams probably will end up having to implement this. Some other credible source has to implement it and check that their implementation works with our implementation and vice versa. That is a really important step because you think you've written things down exactly, but someone reads the same sentence a different way and suddenly you've got an incompatibility somewhere you didn't think was possible to be incompatible. That step is really important. Also, at that point, sometimes people find, hold on, why the hell did you do it this way? It would have been way easier if we'd done it this way. And you go, oh yeah, that's a good point. Refinement and simplification happen during that phase. And then you go, right, we've both agreed that the spec says exactly what it says, and we both agree we've implemented it, and we both agree that we interoperate, then it can go through the spec process vote and gets ticked off. And then basically you're right. Now we can release it as an official thing. It gets an official feature number, so nodes can advertise they support it, etc. The question of when will I be able to use offers without worrying about it versus just playing around with it? At this stage, we're in April. This is at least a six-month process. We'll look 2021. But when will I be able to play around with them? Hopefully within a couple of months. There'll be a live implementation. We'll be actively getting feedback on the spec and stuff like that. It's one of my goals is to have it experimental implementation, which means that it can all be changed, but at least it exists. In the next version of C Lightning 0.90, we have a two-month release cycle. We're just about to drop 0.8.2. I have the clocks ticking. I have just less than two months in order to get it in the next one. So definitely I expect something in by that version. Is there anything that you're looking forward to in the upcoming release of C Lightning? 
Yeah, there are a number of small refinements. One of them is the large channel support. As most people know, we left some training wheels on in the early versions of the Lightning spec. There are two main ones. One is that any single payment can only be 0.042 Bitcoin. The other one is that any channel that you create can only be 0.16 Bitcoin large. These are pretty much arbitrary restrictions in the spec that said you just won't accept someone trying to do things larger than that. There was recently something accepted into the spec, a feature that says uh, called, called optional large channels. If both peers advertise this feature, then it means you and I can now open a channel of arbitrary size. There's already been some boutique work. People have done this individually. This is the formal way of doing it. And we have implemented it in C Lightning, but it's not on by default. By default, we still will go, no, 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 don't do that. If you specify the large channels option in your config file or on the command line, and your peer supports it, of course, then now you can open multi-Bitcoin channels if you want to. So you've kind of taken the shackles off channel sizing. That's a pretty straightforward change to make. It reflects our increasing confidence. People actually have been asking for that because they want to establish large channels in certain cases. As always, this is still software uh, and it's still software that is in development. If you're risking your own Bitcoin, then more power to you. The original reason we had the limit on HLC size was that when we started this, that amount of Bitcoin was about 10 bucks. And I figured, yeah, look, if you lose money because of my implementation, then you can only lose 10 bucks. And if you lose 10 bucks, I'll buy you a beer and we'll be roughly even. That was the level of warranty I was prepared to offer to people. Of course, the Bitcoin prices has jumped significantly since then. So that's a really, really expensive way to get a beer off me if you manage to lose a full HTLC on C-Lightning. That, in fact, is one of the reasons that those restrictions have stayed in place is because they have effectively become larger just through Bitcoin price changes. We haven't really had to change them any earlier. Just to make sure that I'm keeping my sanity here, did LND have something called Wumbo that's roughly the same thing? <laughs> Yeah, at the second Lightning Summit, it was Roast Beef who proposed the name Wombo for this, this mega option, which would take off the restrictions on two things, HTLC size and channel size. It turns out Wombo is a SpongeBob reference, which only a couple other people got. Part of my due diligence, I went back and watched some SpongeBob. I now get all the Wombo references. This, this is an important part of my spec work, is to make sure that I understand what Roast Beef is talking about. You can also specify the option Wombo. That's an alias for large channels in the Sea Lightning release as well, if you want to. Perfect. I just wanted to make sure to get our SpongeBob in there. We're running a little bit shy of time here. I have some other meta lightning questions that I wanted to go into here, if you don't mind. Cool. I wanted to ask some skeptical questions because I'm a very skeptical person by nature. Would you say that there's any big reasons to be skeptical of the lightning network being able to be the thing that will help with scaling and other things on Bitcoin? Yeah, so I've always been more bearish on this whole Lightning as a scaling vector. What Lightning does is enable things that you couldn't do on the Bitcoin network. You can't send less than 546 Satoshis, for example. There's a dust limit. You can't send really, really tiny amounts on Bitcoin on-chain. And you wouldn't want to because of fees anyway. There are whole use cases for tiny regular payments, which you just can't use them on-chain. They've never made sense, and you weren't ever going to be able to do that. It's possible that what happens is the Lightning Network fills up with some killer use case that is all about tiny, tiny payments that are impractical, genuine micropayments. Then you go, well, okay, so you use Bitcoin for your big payments on-chain, and then you just use it via Lightning if you want to make small payments. That may take some pressure off the Bitcoin Network. There is a whole side to the Bitcoin Network involving large movements, which Lightning doesn't really help with. One of the reasons is that, obviously, the fee, fee structure is different. In Lightning, you're paying for the capacity you're using, so it's proportional the amount you use. And Bitcoin on-chain, you're using up block capacity, so you're paying for the size, not the amount at all. The other one is that the liquidity requirements are across the network. You know, If you're bouncing through four different people, they've all got to be able to forward that size payment. You naturally hit this limitation in Lightning on making larger payments. And there's certainly a Bitcoin use case where it becomes common where the main usage is really, really large payments, and Lightning doesn't help you at all with that. 
There are other alternate schemes that you can use for those kind of things. Obviously, I work for Blockstream. We have a product called Liquid, which is a side chain, has a different trust model, but has other advantages. There are other ways that you can move large funds, but it's not clear to me that Lightning will necessarily be a panacea. The other option, the other problem is, of course, you know, if you go, if we get this massive boom in Lightning, the first thing everyone tries to do is open the Lightning channel. Each of those is an on-chain transaction. Restrictions of the throughput of the Bitcoin network effectively map into restrictions on how fast we can on-ramp people in the Lightning network. Obviously, it's a champagne problem, but still, we could actually end up making congestion worse rather than better in that kind of scenario. A question, or maybe not a question, but an answer that comes up a lot on the podcast is the idea that if fees on Bitcoin get to a certain amount, then the Lightning network breaks. Do you have any opinion on that kind of idea? Oh, absolutely. Once you're on the Lightning Network, Bitcoin fees are the cost of enforcement. You and I have an agreement. If you break the rules, I close the channel on you. And that's the basic deal. You stop responding or you're just not forwarding payments for me or whatever it is, or you send invalid transactions. You start trying to change balances, whatever it is, I close the channel on you. Now, if the cost for me to close the channel is high enough, then it's tempting to let you get away with some stuff. The, the contract starts to break down. If it costs me something ridiculous, like $100 to close the channel, and you're just trying to steal $2 from me, maybe I'll let you do it. I'm like, well, I'm not going to close the channel on you because it's really expensive and I really like having access to Lightning. So yeah, I'll let you get away with some stuff. That's obviously incredibly corrosive and potentially destructive of the Lightning Network. If fees were to hit the point at which it is no longer realistic to open or close channels, then you lose or significantly weaken your ability to enforce the rules on the Lightning Network. Now, there are alternate ways of enforcing rules. You can have reputation systems and other things, but that's not the Lightning Network we're building today. It's not the Lightning Network that I'm interested in building. That's something very different. It would be possible to build something, but not something as trustless as the Lightning Network if the cost of enforcement were to go through the roof. I believe that Joseph Poon, and I can never say his name correctly. Who's the other person that wrote the white paper for me? Taj Straja, Thaddeus, but everyone calls him Taj. Yes, I can never say that name. So I uh, definitely apologize for not being able to say your name, man. But I believe originally they wrote out and calculated the amount of base block size that Bitcoin would need to get in order to serve a certain amount of billions of people or something like that. Do you have any opinion on increasing the base block size on Bitcoin? Yeah, so they, they did a back of envelope kind of calculation and said, cool, if you want to onboard people this fast, here's the block size that we would need. There's so many variables in that that it's an interesting data point, but it's not necessarily canonical go-to for that. The other option, of course, is to make smaller transactions, for example, which is something we're seeing with Taproot. Now, that said, I've long been a proponent of a responsibly done eventual hard fork to increase the block size, because I think it is something that at some point we will have capacity to increase block size. We've done the whole add an appendix thing that we did with SegWit, which was really good, but any further increases are probably best done as a clean hard fork. I think for Bitcoin, a hard fork is a question of five to 10 years of planning rather than something we do next week. One thing that does annoy me is the whole block size debate, which turned out that it wasn't necessarily a block size debate. There were other motivations for, for debate around that. But it has created this scorched earth effect that is very hard to have a responsible adult conversation about how we would want to increase the block size in Bitcoin without getting all these emotive responses. The problem is that if you want to have a block size increase in four years time, you really need to build in consensus on it now. The Bitcoin network's main virtue is that it does not move quickly. It's, it's a very long process. It's annoying that we can't have those conversations today in a constructive setting because it means that inevitably it's, it's delayed further and further. I think in that time range, we are going to want a block size increase. And we're kind of cursed by history in this case that I think it's going to be very hard for us to do.
kind of random question here, but do you have any analogies to the block size debate in your Linux background? In some ways, some of the Linux debates that happened really early on in, in kernel development seemed like a huge deal at the time. When you look back on them, they really weren't. But you had to go through that process. People really cared about this fledgling thing we had built. The first time you get this massive disagreement, you discover a lot about yourselves. You also come out of it with a couple of things. One is a shared sense of purpose. You go, well, okay, so the people who are left have new agreement on what the rules are and what is acceptable and what isn't. Also, it gives you a sense that, you know what, we survive that. When another crisis comes up, you go, okay, we've, we've done this before. The first crisis is always the worst. Certainly, that was the way it was in the early days of Linux. I feel there's some things here as well. I think one of the lessons that has definitely been taken to heart is that the Bitcoin developers, the core developers, the people I work with, they understood all this. They understood the limitations of Bitcoin's bandwidth, the effect of the block size cap, the long-term effect that this would have in shifting the network across the fees and everything else. That was wasn't well communicated to the broader Bitcoin audience. You could read Satoshi's white paper and you could go, okay, it talks about transition to fees. We have this block size limit. You, you need some kind of limitation. So you need some reason that people would pay fees. Otherwise, why would they? It was obvious that a network was going to become constrained at some point and you did the numbers and you went, okay, so there has to be some limit in how much throughput it can have. That does make sense. If you were deep into Bitcoin tech, this thing wasn't a surprise at all. But if you'd come into Bitcoin and just weren't particularly technical or weren't deep into this tech and you kind of came up and went, oh, wow, okay, so basically Bitcoin's thing where we freely send money to each other of any amounts we want, which it was in the early days. It's like the first people to discover a bridge and go, wow, this is great. There's no traffic here. We can just wander across. But of course, once it catches on, there is traffic. Then people go, wow, this isn't like the good old days. This isn't the Bitcoin I came for. I was sold on this whole, it's always free and it's instantly sending money around the world and stuff. I think people did feel that there was something of a bait and switch. They were like, this is not the Bitcoin I signed up for because nobody had explained if this thing succeeds, it's going to get congested and it needs to get congested. This is part of the plan. It's like a startup that has a free offering that doesn't make it clear that the free offering expires. And when the free offering expires, everyone goes, crap, I built my business on it. I always expected it to be free. I had no idea you were ever going to charge. Bitcoin kind of went through the same thing. I think there's been a lot of good lessons learned here that the developers need to communicate quite clearly about how the test system actually works and the things we know and the things we don't know. We've seen a lot more communication on that front. Th that information has propagated much better now through the Bitcoin ecosystem. It was certainly surprising to a lot of people how different the opinions were of the people who've worked on this stuff for years and new things and the broader Bitcoin audience. And there was actually a significant difference there in level of knowledge that I think is something that happens when a project goes from being this cool thing that only geeks care about to something that a broader audience cares about, which pretty much corresponds to an increase in the Bitcoin price. Do you think the well-known coins that I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of have taken the alternative approach of having mega gigablocks or whatever, do you think those are just dead ends that are going to end up dying one day? Yeah, but they're going to die long before they hit the problem of having gigablocks. You have to understand that the way Bitcoin worked is that when you first heard about Bitcoin, it wasn't an investment. It was an open source project trying to create this money you could send over the internet. That's very different. Yeah, you could speculate and go, oh, maybe this thing is going to be worth something someday. Chances are it wasn't going to, but it was a cool tech and a really interesting technology. That was what attracted people to Bitcoin in the early days, and it was cool. It turns out, of course, and people have discovered this since, rediscovered it, in fact, because it's a very old maxim that if you can print your own money, 
money, then you can make a lot of money, which is almost a tautology. The idea that you could print money and have other people respect it was something that had been forgotten a little bit. When Bitcoin managed to do it, everyone went, wow, hey, maybe I could do this. And the worst thing that happened in this whole ecosystem was that Litecoin did not immediately fail and it was actually worth something. I was like, wow, you mean you can just make a, well, crap. And then, you know, the floodgates opened and everyone started producing crap coins. The problem with a crap coin of any species is that the main motivation for it is always revenue. It's always about the free money thing. Even if you created it and you were an absolute saint, you're going to be immediately surrounded by people who are fully aware that if this thing's successful, you've just minted free money. That out of the gate effectively corrupts any other altcoin. The rest of it almost doesn't matter. If the main motivation for doing your thing is to make yourself money, then that's not something I want to use. Why would I want to use something that makes you rich? I don't want to carry your bags for you. It's just not interesting to me. Whenever there's some crisis or decision, you will have to choose in favor of whatever maximizes your profits. That means it can't be fully decentralized because you can't give up that control and still maximize your own profits. The marketplace obviously has, has not made it imperative that you decentralize more than a token amount. Immediately, all the motivations are pushing you towards this profit maximization thing at the expense of everyone else because it ends up being a zero sum. I have no time or respect for any of the other alternative coins. Having gone through this process where we saw these, these altcoins rise up and we saw the super alts rise up, now we've seen this wave of Bitcoin forks. Everyone's trying to figure out a new twist on how to basically print their own money. The shame is that some of them have been successful in making themselves a lot of money. Until that hope is completely dead, it means that when I have friends and colleagues who are technical outside this industry look at the industry as a whole, that's the majority of the noise being made is basically the free money crowd. That is not interesting to me in the slightest. It means this huge disconnect. They go, why the hell are you involved with this? It's kind of hard to rebut. You're like, yeah, there is a whole heap of crap out there that I simply do not want to have anything to do with. And by weight, that is the vast majority of the crypto industry. Bitcoin itself is different and Bitcoin development itself is different. I think from a thousand foot view, that is really, really hard to tell. I, th I think that was a really good answer to the, the question there. It just obliterated the need to even talk about the specifics of the coins themselves. I wanted to ask you maybe two more questions here. The last one on Bitcoin and Lightning that I would ask is, is there anything else you want to throw out here at the end in relation to Bitcoin or Lightning, whether it be related to Sea Lightning or anything else? I think one point I always like to make is that I've found that the Lightning developers are some of the most friendly and approachable devs as well. Part of that's a conscious decision. Be excellent to each other is one of the ground rules for Lightning spec development and, and the projects as well. Just genuinely, they're really nice people. If you actually want to work with people who you will enjoy working with, I, I would strongly recommend getting involved in any of the projects because they're incredibly welcoming and an amazing amount of fun and exciting. If you're sitting there wondering what to do in your isolation time, then getting involved in any of the Lightning projects, I think you'll find to be incredibly rewarding and a whole heap of fun. As a quick response to that, what about the listeners that maybe aren't as technical as you are or other people might be? It's not just technical contributions. Getting in and playing with stuff, building stuff on top, building stupid toys on top of Lightning it's itself is contributing and giving feedback. We love bug reports. Try to install something. Try to run it. Install BTC pay server or something and, and try to get stuff. There's so much happening in this ecosystem. We're still in those really early days where even if you're not hugely technical, you can get involved. You can find stuff. Like you can certainly find stuff that's broken and that could do better. Like I don't even understand this because that's valid feedback in itself. You're like, cool, this says this and I have no idea what that means. It's like, oh, okay, well, there's two possibilities. One is that that was not something that was aimed at you, in which case that should be made clear or that is a terrible explanation and we really should clean that up. 
up, there is a broad range of contributions that are all required and all can be really rewarding to do. We had somebody actually go through the whole spec, for example, and edit it and do cleanups and a style guide and everything else. I cannot imagine anything more mundane or boring, but there are people out there who do this well, and it was amazing. The spec as a result is far cleaner and better. We've probably messed it up a bit since then. People who have skills like that who want to contribute are incredibly welcome. I think at this point, you can get involved in almost any way, and I think you'll find the same experience, that it's really rewarding, and people are incredibly grateful that you're doing stuff. My final question is, since we're in the middle of the coronavirus thing, I wanted to have a bit of imprinted history. It's something that we're living, so I think we might as well put it down on paper, as it were. How have you been holding up under the current global state of the world? So I'm in Australia, as I said before, and we are an island, so we're often late to the party on a lot of these things. In this case, it benefited us to a great extent. We have a few cases here. We went into lockdown pretty early. It's actually state by state. Here, it's basically social distancing and takeaway food only. Some restrictions on other businesses, gyms have closed, for example. Most places are open, but doing takeout or contactless delivery and things like that, people are kind of adjusting. For my workflow, I'm already working remotely, so that's fine. Across Christians in Zurich and Lisa is in Houston. I'm already spanning the globe in time zones. That didn't change anything. Still doing meetings. We did pull our kids out of school. That has been the main detraction from my work week has been helping kind of homeschool the kids or keep them entertained now or between term one and term two vacation. That's been the main challenge. My parenting duties have increased significantly. It hasn't had a huge effect on development and developers because we're all in that remote asynchronous mode already. It is different. I was hugely looking forward to the Blockstream offsite where we get the whole company together physically in one place, particularly for somebody who's very remote from my coworkers. I really look forward to those events. Obviously, that's been postponed indefinitely for this year. Similarly with lightning conferences, I love going to face-to-face events and catching up with people. I hate the jet lag, but I, I love being there. Seeing those canceled uh, and seeing those conferences postponed has certainly been a downer. We've got momentum to bring us through, but I always find those those face-to-face events really invigorating. They reignite stuff and people come out with so much energy. I think that is probably the damaging thing. And we won't know the effects of stuff that didn't happen because people didn't get together face-to-face. I was hugely looking forward to the second lightning conference, for example, because that had an amazing energy. That I think is an adjustment for everyone. It hasn't been too bad here, to be honest. For that reason, perhaps we will get hit harder by a second wave if there is one. If we relax too fast, it's certainly possible. Would you say that you have a future prediction maybe of what permanent change that this might have left on the world? Wow. No, I think we saw in the early stages, any exponential effects lead to surprise and confusion naturally. Even if you think you've taken it into account, it's really hard to take it into account. We saw surprise and confusion. Here, at least we haven't seen anger. That is definitely coming. I would think that if things are not effective and you end up with a large number of deaths, there's going to be anger. If things are effective and you have a small number of deaths, there's going to be anger about, oh, this was unnecessary. We didn't need to do it. I think that and anger isn't always rational. It's hard to see where that will be focused. I expect we will go through that phase. We will have this social unrest and, and things like that. People, whatever it is that catches their attention will be this dark side. We've generally seen communities around here, at least, bonding together, being very, very supportive, a lot of helping out by local and stuff like that to try to help people. I predict as this thing goes on and starts to wear, we're going to see more anger and social unrest, which isn't always logical or aimed in a logical direction. It's really hard for me to predict what the effect of that would be. But I expect that is the other shoe that has yet to drop. Well, I'm going to go ahead and end the show there. Do you want to let the listeners know how they can find you on Twitter and how they can find any other projects or anything else you want to tell them about? 
Yep, I'm at Rusty underscore twit on Twitter. I'm pretty easy. Google Rusty Russell, not the preacher on the other one. You can usually find me. I'm always happy to talk to people about lightning stuff. I find it fascinating. Hit me up if you want to discuss stuff on lightning. Otherwise, I'll see you online and as part of the broader lightning community. All right. Thank you so much, Rusty, for joining me on the podcast. Boom. That was the 29th episode of the Lightning Junkies podcast. What did you think? Did you learn anything in this episode? Did it challenge any of your preconceived notions of what Rusty or any other Lightning developer might think or do? This was definitely one of the best conversations I've ever had with anyone before, not only because Rusty is such a good conversator. He is just so full of knowledge and history. I'm really happy to have had him on the show. Besides that, I just wanted to give you some reminders on how to support the show. I did update the website at lightningjunkies.net and we do have a support page at lightningjunkies.net forward slash support where you can find the various places you could subscribe and leave a review of the podcast, as well as different ways you could support the podcast monetarily with your Bitcoin or Bitcoin over Lightning or even your dirty fiat. For now, I'll see you on the Lightning Network.